Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera, and you're listening to The Insider, the Jazz Sessions spin-off series where I chat to jazz industry experts about the nuts and bolts of the business. Lesson one, basic hip. Today's guest is South African writer, teacher, media consultant, and creative industries researcher, Gwen Ansel. A former Louis Armstrong visiting professor at the Center for Jazz Studies at Columbia University, she is the author of Soweto Blues, Jazz Politics and Popular Music in South Africa, and the textbook Introduction to Journalism. She is also the person to whom I defer whenever asked about anything relating to South African jazz, the music or the musicians. So Gwen, hello and welcome to The Insider. Hi Nikki, and I'm happy to be at least virtually here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you virtual. We'll take you in any way we can get you because it's just such a treat to get to chat to you. I'd like to dive in and just ask you to tell our listeners how you found your way into writing and specifically writing about jazz. Um, They are actually two different answers. Writing is something I have done since, since before I was a student. I've been writing since I was at school. I was one of those nerdy kids who entered newspaper poetry competitions and did all that kind of stuff. So writing's been a constant. Writing about jazz was a much more gradual process. Um, I I always attended jazz when I was, I grew up in the UK. I was actually in the UK until the 80s Um, and was around people who were also writing about jazz, although I wasn't at that time. And I discovered that sometimes I had the rather arrogant insight that perhaps I could do this better than they could. And then when I got to Botswana, I actually, my first job in Africa was in Botswana working with the university on an adult literacy trainers education program. And one of the local newspapers published something on a band. In fact, it was Jonas Gwangwes Shakawe, which um, compared them among other things to the Beatles. And I was so incensed by the inappropriateness of this that I wrote an alternative review and sent it in. And the editor said, that was great. Would you like to be our music reviewer? So that's how that happened. And Gwen, for folks who are perhaps not familiar with your writing, it is very South Africa centric. It's your focus really is South African jazz musicians and South African jazz. Would you say that's accurate? Oh, absolutely. And very deliberate. Um, I listen to much more than I write about, obviously, as any music fan does. But I feel that there's a a major set of gaps in the record about what's happening in music in this country. And I deliberately use my public platforms to try and compensate at least a little bit for that by actually documenting. It strikes me that given that most mainstream papers these days don't employ um, full-time music or arts writers, that actually the kind of thing I was doing when I was writing Soweto Blues, which is I would go to the archive, I'd go to back copies of magazines like South African Drum, and I would find the stories of artists there. But if I look at most of the people who are really interesting in South African jazz at the moment here, and then I actually go even to online archives, their music is sometimes there on Bandcamp or some similar, but insights into who they are and why and how they do what they do are almost completely absent. I completely agree. I mean, it is for that reason that I'm so aware of your work and grateful for it. And I was not joking before when I said that you really are, I think, one of a handful of go-tos for me when people ask me about anything South African jazz related, 
I fob them off. I say, please go and ask Gwen because you have the knowledge, you have a sense of the history and the lineage and you have a sense of the current day because you are prolific and you are still writing today about many South African jazz artists, who many of whom are my peers. So I feel like your breadth of knowledge is both dazzling but also so important, as you mentioned, because there is a gap. Do you have any thoughts as to why there is a gap or why the coverage of South African jazz, I mean, even in South African publications, seems to be a little bit blotchy, for lack of a better word? I think that's a kind description. <laughs> um, mainly it relates to the way South Africa has responded to the same pressures that the former print media, now no longer just the print media, are experiencing all over the world, which is that there's less money, there are fewer resources, the assumption is that everything is available online. And how South African newspapers have responded to that is firstly by firing all their specialist reporters, because in the main, those are older and therefore on higher pay grades. And secondly, and this is where South African coverage suffers particularly, by substituting for that easily accessible and relatively cheap syndicated international copy. So you will read more about Madonna in a South African paper than you will about Siamakuzeni, for example. with writing for publications because you're freelance now. I don't know, in fact, if you ever were employed in any sort of full-time or semi-full-time way. I know now that you've written for, you know, Mail and Guardian, the Financial Mail, and several online outlets. Did you ever have a relationship that was um, more full-time, I guess, with a print publication? Yes. Um, not full-time in the sense that I was full-time in a newsroom. I haven't done a full-time job in that sense since the early 2000s when I went freelance as a teacher and as a researcher as well. But in terms of having a regular gig, I spent nearly five years being the regular jazz correspondent for um, Business Day and the Financial Mail, which are both part of the same news group. And the, the sad thing about that ending, apart from the fact that I could no longer rely on a regular monthly stipend, was the fact that when one does that kind of thing, one builds up a community of readers who correspond with me, who get to know one another. And that just isn't there in the same way. I think some broadcasters who have regular broadcasts, and I think in this country, particularly of Notemba Madumo and Brenda Sisane, they have similar communities around them who not only are regular listeners, but who in an emotional sense affiliate 
with the other people who are also part of that listening community. But there's very little of that happening around the media now because there are very few regular slots for coverage of South African music. What effect do you think it would have on the current crop of South African jazz artists? Were there more consistent written coverage of the music that they were releasing, the performances that they were scheduled to do? Uh, If that community that you talk about, if that existed, do you think it would have a big impact on the artist's ability, I guess, to build a profile or to get bums on seats or to sell records? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I I know rather than just speculate about this, I did a small survey a couple of years back, which has been published as part of coverage in I think the most recent edition of the South African um, Society for Research in Music periodical. And artists said two things. Three things, actually. The first was, yes, it helps to build profile. And it builds profile in a very different way from simply posting that you have a gig on Facebook. Because that's, you know, if people follow you on Facebook, they will see that. And if they don't, they won't. But if they just pick up a daily paper and it's in there, they'll notice it even if they weren't looking for it. So there is that obvious commercial impact. Secondly, artists expressed in that survey that they missed the personal development of getting feedback from music writers. And I deliberately don't use the word critic because I think we are far more than critics. And I think that critic is a a rather an old style elitist label. But we engage with the music. We talk about what's happening within the music, how it's received. So that's the second impact, that artists themselves miss that feedback. And the third impact is that because of the lack of profiling, many artists say that these days they spend as much time looking after business as looking after music because they have no resources in the main to engage managers or publicists. Some of them do, but that's very much a minority. And without the kind of profile building that the media can offer, they actually have to take a lot more time to do that. And it's not their main business. It's not their skill set. Some of them do it well. Some of them do it badly. They'd all much rather be rehearsing and composing. That's, I mean, that's a universal truth, isn't it? Even though the South African jazz landscape and the South African media landscape is, of course, very different to what exists in the United States or in the UK, where I just think it's it's all sort of bigger, not necessarily better, but certainly bigger, and there is more of everything. But that truth um, remains, regardless of which side of the pond you find yourself on. Oh, absolutely. mentioned the term critic as opposed to journalist or or someone who covers music. I often have a gripe about writing about the arts as it exists now in 2021 for sure, although I felt this way for some time now, and that is that there isn't 
enough criticism. And when I use that word, I don't mean maliciousness or anything of that nature. I just mean that I'm, I'm exceedingly aware that I'm reading a lot of regurgitated press releases that don't say anything about the music and don't offer up a window that perhaps the reader had not contemplated when it came to looking at or listening to something. What what do you think about the balance and what do you tell your students about the balance between reporting versus, let's say, analysing instead of criticising? Is that something you think about? Oh, very much so. Um, description is all very well, but it is extremely limited. And particularly, it's hard to describe a performance without being extremely boring. First they played Round Midnight, then they played Autumn Leaves, then they played, then the drummer took a solo. It's extremely hard to do purely descriptive writing without it becoming very, very tedious. But I also think that it's very important to think about what criteria you use for engaging with the music. And for me, the main criterion, and this is what I try to do, is to find out what the artist was trying to achieve. And if I'm going to criticize, then my criticism will be, did they achieve it or not? Rather than putting, and this is why I don't like the word critic, rather than saying there is some absolute elite standard out there and I will decide whether this is good music or bad music. I don't think, I don't think that ever worked, but it had a place in a different social and cultural setup. But I think the most important thing is, what was she or he trying to do? And did they approach that goal that they had set for themselves? And that's also what I say to people when I am teaching, is find out what the artist was intending to do. Don't criticize them on the basis of some abstract external standard, but see what their goals were and see if you think, or if other audience members think, because it's quite legitimate to talk to the rest of the audience about what they're experiencing to see if you think they achieved that. I often think that writing in that way requires more energy and more finesse, which is why one of my other bungled theories is that I think a lot of writers are either spread so thin or not remunerated enough to sort of warrant the time it takes to write in that manner as opposed to saying this is the track release of the album, it's this song followed by this song and -and so-and-so wrote it. I think to balance that out so that you, as you say, are serving a purpose and not merely passing your own opinion, but there's, there's something to be said for whatever it is that you are writing about an artist, their music or their performance. It requires more. I think it also requires courage. And I think that's another thing which, particularly for young writers, there is an unfortunate tendency for people to be, I mean, I say this in my class and I say it in a much ruder vocabulary, but I say, do not be a star lover. Do not simply think that because you are in the dressing room with a famous person, that all you must do is listen to what they have to say, not ask them any questions and not attempt any exploration or evaluation. But I think for a young writer, there's something quite intoxicating about getting into the dressing room and talking to the artist. And I think it requires quite a lot of courage to actually say, no, no, don't tell me that. That's what you say in your press release. What were you really trying to do when you made this piece of music? And why did you do it like that? And how did you do it? Absolutely. Do you have any interviews that stand out in your mind as being particularly successful, whether it's how the artist was perceived in the in the published account or whether you felt that you really got the answers that you were looking for? Um, I think it's quite invidious to actually select, but I would say the thing I'm probably proudest of is actually being able to talk to so many artists who have now left us about their experiences under apartheid for Soweto Blues. I think, you know, that was priceless archive and it just wouldn't have been there. Well, I mean, on that note, we've lost a lot of jazz legends, uh, both in South Africa as well as abroad. In recent times, it's particularly poignant given the state of the world of course and you've written a a slew 
of really amazing, I won't call them obituaries, I'd rather call them sort of in remembrance of pieces. Notably, you wrote about Sibungile Kumalo, who we lost, and Seppo Chola, and Jonas Guangwa, who you mentioned earlier. Can you speak about writing those sorts of pieces? Well, I think the first thing to say is that I hate it and it's extremely depressing. Um, be- simply because, you know, it, it's really hard to think about. These are people who have brought enormous joy to my life and to the lives of other people who've experienced their music and they are no longer with us. And in that sense, it's not my favorite occupation. And even worse than that is what certain media do, which is to build up an archive of obituaries of people whom you know are old and or sick and who are therefore likely to leave us and doing that while someone is still alive, which I have done a couple of times, is actually devastating. So the first thing to say is it's absolutely not fun and I wish that I did not have to do it. But given that we are all mortal and one does have to do it, I think what you have to think about is what do people not know that they should know about this person? And how, in many ways, has their music changed the music landscape? In other words, contribution. And I think those two things are really, what was special about them? What was their USP, if you like, which meant that South African music would have been different if they had not been there? I always like the idea, it's sort of, I guess, like an Irish wake, where you're celebrating the life as opposed to mourning the loss. Yes, very much so. Yes, I think I'd like to add something to that as well in terms of coverage I've been proud of. And that is two people who were not actual performers, but who played an absolutely central role in the making of music. And that is, I was able to work with the editor of the Friday at the Mail and Guardian, and I did one obituary and um, a friend who knew her in Cape Town did the other. And those were the wives of Louis Moholo Moholo and Jonas Guangwa, who died within a week of one another, both of whom had been absolutely central, not just as supports in that old sexist way, but they'd played a huge role in developing the music and professional scenes where their spouses had actually played. And I think, yes, I was very proud that we were able to put a whole page in the Mail and Guardian on those two remarkable women, because they are, um, and I believe the, the term musicking actually takes all this in, they are as much part of the music scene as the people who actually stand up on stage and blow an instrument. Fantastic. I'll try and find links to them then and add them to the show notes for this episode so that people can go and read them. I'm going to go and seek them out myself. No, I mean, I see. I think we forget. We, I mean, we use these diminishing terms like muse about women around the music scene. But in fact, these are workers on the music scene who actually contribute to making music happen, to bringing in audiences, to all of those things. And I think those roles need to be saluted also. Were they musicians themselves, Jonas and Louis' wives? Uh, No, they had both worked in and around showbiz at various points in their lives. They were organisers. Okay, but I mean, that is also the classic cliche, and you see it played out in films time and time again, where the wife of the husband who is going on to great heights is the person behind the scenes making sure that he shows up on time and, you know, and is is more than just a support role, is huge. It's actually a professional role. It's not just about nurturing the artist and getting him to the stage door on time. It's about making gigs happen. It's about sometimes selling tickets. It's about talking to potential audience members. It is a professional role, and like a great many of the other domestic roles that women carry out, it's unremunerated, it's unrecognized, but it's actually part of the industry. Well, I feel embarrassed to say that I didn't know that their wives played that role, and the only sort of, I guess, the the people who come out after the fact as having been their own people are often the, the wives who happen to be musicians. I think of someone like Satima B. Benjamin and Abdullah Ibrahim. But, you know, as you say, there are other professional roles within the community. 
if your spouse. Yes, and that even if they are unpaid roles, they are nevertheless professional roles because they help to make the business happen. students about writing in the arts what are some of the most important lessons you impart to those students and also how do you advise them to go forward once they are out of school if writing is something that they want to pursue in any sort of full-time capacity well i think there's a tendency to fetishize cultural writing as though it was somehow different the lessons I try to teach to my students are just about basic good journalism, you know, go out, talk to people, observe things, check your facts, get things right, don't go on rumor, be aware that people who tell you stuff may have their own motives for telling you stuff, actually look for solid information. If you don't know, go and find an expert who does and ask them. These are all the these are all the um, the principles of basic journalism. They're not special to arts journalism. And I think one of the things for me that is sometimes problematic is that editors assume that any old newsroom junior can write about the arts because in some ways it's lesser than any other kind of journalism, whereas in fact it is exactly the same as every other kind of journalism. So that's the first thing I would say, is that in many ways, if you want to be a good arts journalist, you have to be a good journalist. You have to understand the value of truth, the value of not messing around with people's quotes to make them more sensational, the value of digging deeper beyond surface appearances, all of those things. So that's what I try and teach. I don't think it's any different. It's an application to a specialized area. So you also have to understand the debates and vocabulary and standards and benchmarks of that area, but it's basically, it's just good journalism. In terms of career development, um, for years now, my only lesson on that is have a plan B. In other words, it's very unlikely that you will get a job where you can spend all day, every day, writing about the arts much as you would love to do so. And therefore you need to develop other skills, whether they are within journalism or whether they are something different, but preferably, and this makes me, I know, very old fashioned, not in PR, not in public relations. 
because there is a straight conflict of interest if you are involved in public relations and also trying to operate as a journalist. Do you find that that happens often? I, I assume that you mean somebody who's acting as a publicist for an artist, but is also pursuing journalistic desires on the side? Or who is working for a major PR company, for example, a company that, let's say, serves a major bank that sponsors major festivals or things like that. Um, I think basically because they use a similar skill set, I think that's one of the easier places to get employment. And for some people, and certainly not for everybody, PR is a lot better paid than journalism is, though that is not true for everybody. But, uh, but I think, no, um, if you are working in an area where on the one hand you are serving the client, and on the other hand you are supposed to be serving the readers, that I think is where the conflict of interest comes in, because they are two different worldviews, and that for me is the major difference between PR and journalism. PR is a, a perfectly legitimate profession, but your employer is the client. And if the client says, write about this or write about that, or put out a story in order to detract attention from the other thing, then that is what you do. There is nothing wrong with that. It is, it's an okay job, you know, it's a legitimate job. But that is very different from the mission of journalism, which is, to discover what is really going on, whether it suits the subject of your writing or not. And do you find, Gwen, because you are a freelance writer now, do you enjoy the freedom of, I assume that you seek out that which you want to cover, nobody is assigning it to you per se, or perhaps they do still too, but there's a large part of, I'll write about what I want to write about. Do you enjoy that freedom? Oh, absolutely. I, lo I love that. And I love the fact that I don't have to write about somebody just because, let's say, they're a star. Um, I write about the people who are doing interesting things, making interesting music, rather than that. On the other hand, there are a lot of things about freelance work which are not so enjoyable, like the freedom to wonder where your next meal is coming from. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> of course. And do you impress upon students that they should take initiative? That degree to, if you're fresh out of school and you want to write, do you tell them just write, find a platform online where you can put all that writing and just, you know, generate content and start creating a whole sort of archive of your material. How important is that? Oh, it's extremely important. The only way you can learn to write is by reading and writing. There, That's true whatever genre of writing you're talking about. So write every day, write about as many things as you are interested in, pitch to every publication that might possibly consider publishing your work. Um, all of those things, plus these days you have to encourage people to develop multimedia skills. It helps if you can take your own pictures, if you can do audio, all of that. Yeah. On that note, who do you like to read? I think in terms of South African, Southern African music, I think for me by far, and he doesn't write about music all the time, but he does some of the time. Um, the writer Percy's Vermuya is absolutely one of my favorite writers. Unfortunately, he spends a lot of time writing about the history of Zimbabwe and various other things, as well as about music. But Percy, I think, is absolutely brilliant. Um, there's another Percy, Percy Mabandu, who is very well informed. Um, there is a photojournalist called Sidiso Monaheng, whom, uh, whose work I really like. Um, there is a writer, but she's very often also a DJ and therefore, again, doesn't write perhaps as much as I'd like her to, and that's Atia Khan. We have good writers in this country. It's the spaces for them to display that writing that are lacking. You know, I could go on, I could spend the next half hour trawling out names, but that's a start.
see as a possible antidote to the issue, which is that there isn't space for writing? Do you think that newspapers and publications should be making more space for paid coverage of the arts? Is that one way to try and rectify it? Well, of course, if you're getting your pages sponsored, you are treading dangerously close to conflict of interest territory again. It would be better than nothing. There's no question about that. But I also think that the newspapers are making a major error by the way in which they have elided specialist writing, because I think it's one of the advantages that the news media have over the individual blogs and things, is the fact that they do have specialist writers whose skills are to some extent warranted, who people want to read. And I, I experience this every year, and I've just experienced it again with the National Arts Festival in Makanda. I have been told over and over again for the last 10 years, nobody wants to read reviews. The readership of my blog doubles or trebles every year when there is a festival on and I review it. And I don't do anything to stir that up. I'm very much a digital foreigner, not a digital native. I don't push on Facebook or anything like that. People want to know what is being performed, even if, and perhaps especially if, they haven't been able to attend those performances. They want to know what they're missing. Absolutely. And I mean, personally, I always love reading your reviews. I've done, I always look out for them when I know that the Cape Town International Jazz Festival has come and gone. Same thing with Makanda. And very often it's because I'm not there in person. And so I want to have a sense of the energy of the occasion. And I get that from your reviews 100%. No, I, I mean, I think newspapers actually sometimes assume that they know what readers want when they don't. Uh, for me, one of the biggest tragedies of Makanda was the abandonment a couple of years back of the Q, which was the student newspaper that covered the entire festival. Um, it was replaced by some kind of online, essentially listings and two or three line reviews, which has a purpose, but it's not the same. But Gwen, you have been writing, I've seen a little bit of writing about Makanda now, correct? Yes. Um, in fact, I've done three batches. Uh, whether I will find time, given that I do also teach and edit and do various other things, whether I'll find time to do another batch before the festival closes at the weekend, I don't know. But I've managed to cover the main things that I wanted to see. I'm afraid that's how my selection was guided. Yeah, it's threefold, I think. First, yeah, I agree with you. I think readers like to read reviews. I think it's a form of writing, an approach to writing that is really enjoyable to uh, absorb. Secondly, it's very important for the artists because you get quotes from those reviews. You also get a, a form of feedback, so to speak, which is in just invaluable in building a career and moving forward. And thirdly, for people who are not there and who have an interest in the music or the scene or the festival, whatever it may be, those reviews are a bit of a, a lifeline. Well, I think for people like, for example, foreign promoters looking to say, who should I take for my festival? If there is absolute silence on who performed and how they performed at a South African festival, that really does not help them in making their selections. <laughs> Tabela 
I wanted to just ask you about a piece that you wrote in April, which covered something that I thought was such a gift for fans of South African jazz, but also just fans of Berkiem Selekus, fans of the great pianist, which was the release of Beyond the Stars, which was a yeah, a posthumous release, and you you wrote a review about it, and I wanted to just ask how thrilled you were when that press release was publicized, and it, it seemed that we were going to have a new album from somebody who left too soon. Look, I think Beyond the Stars fills in a gap about what was happening in London. There is a tendency to talk only about the darker side of Becky's time in London. He was very lonely, he couldn't always find work. He had the support of some really strong and powerful friends, but the fact that he was still creating and exploring, I think, is a side of that time in London that is also well worth memorializing. And this was wonderful. I mean, in many ways for me, it wasn't a finished album. In many ways for me, it was Becky starting new ideas, new bits of work, exploring. If if he had lived longer, I think we would have heard versions of that material which went even further than the ones that are on the recording, because that's how any creative musician works. That's not a particularly a comment on Becky or that particular album. But it was the start of something. And I think as much as it was very joyful to have that music, I'd love to have heard how it grew and developed in the time after. Yeah, so it's sort of bittersweet because we're given something yes. and then we are left with the feeling of, but but I want more. <laughs> yes, exactly. And where would he have taken this? Exactly, it's a bit cruel. Um, well, but I will, again, for listeners, I will put links both to Gwen's review of the Becky and Seleku album in the show notes and also I'll put a link to the Bandcamp page where you can actually buy the album and also I think listen to other albums that Becky put out if you're not familiar with his work. He's certainly, I would say, my favourite South African pianist. I I have to say, um, independent labels, all of them, are actually so important in this work of retrieving and republishing because in South Africa, we have a particular set of problems, which include exile. Um, They include the attitude of record companies under apartheid. And they also include the, the situation of artists and music buyers in this country under apartheid, where if you were a black family and you were forcibly removed, Quite often you couldn't take your records with you or they got smashed on the lorry when you were being trucked off to the townships. So very often even masters haven't survived because of the record company's carelessness or perhaps the record company went bust. Um, There are no copies of these records. We know that people made records, but there are no copies of them. Another example, I think, which has just been retrieved, um, well, two examples. One is the Kipi Mwiketsi house singer Blue Stomping, which has come out from a small label called We Are Busybodies, a Canadian label, which actually even the master was not retrievable for a long time and a, a major work of reconstruction had to be done to get that out. And the other is the solo, well, not solo, the small group recording of pianist Gideon Ngomalo, Gideon Plays, which is now also available. And both of these were, we knew they existed, but they were lost. And the fact that these smaller independent labels, often running at a loss, one has to say, are actually around to retrieve this stuff and represent it is actually something of a a miracle in terms of younger generations of South Africans and especially South African music students knowing what went before. Yes, absolutely. One of my big gripes is the fact that 
Recorded music is one thing, but so much of this music was never notated. So when we speak True. about music students and the the often if they're studying at university, whether in, in Cape Town or, or Witz or UKZN, wherever it is, notated music is such a big part of that study and so much of that notated music is not the notated music of these people and of the South African jazz songs and that really that really saddens me well that's one of the major contributors to what's been described as the amerocentrism or the eurocentrism of university jazz curricula totally the fact is that until this stuff comes out until it is listenable until it is notated it is very very hard to create a teaching curriculum I mean, I, I think sometimes more could be done than has been done, but I think in general that argument is valid, that it's really hard to make a curriculum if material is not there. Gwen, were you aware of Andrew Lilly's recent book published about Berkey's music? It, was, it contained a lot of transcriptions of Berkey's um, songs, but then, yeah, also the analysis. Yes. That's the sort of thing that's inevitably going to follow once sufficient recorded material is around. And I think that's a, a thoroughly laudable initiative. Yes, absolutely. It came to mind. And we should also mention, we should say, uh, you were talking about the record labels and their ability to find these, whether it's the masters or just these recordings and release them. I mean, I hope that you'll cover... I Have the recordings by Kippy and... I forget the other name you mentioned. Was it Gideon Mamala? Gideon. Have they been released yet? Um, yes. In fact, the Kippy was, I think, officially released um, middle of June, and the Gideon somewhat before that. And at some point, I will get round to writing about them. Okay. Well, I was going to say no pressure, Gwen, but I look forward to. Thank you. For that. I look forward to reading your writings about those because, again, the writing. The, when people write about music, it really doesn't, it can encourage people to go and listen. And the inverse is also true. The two go hand in hand. No, and, and I think um, particularly those two, the Gideon is just a complete knockout. Um, given that Gideon has been a legendary figure in South African music, there has been a biographical film which Glenn Masakwane made about him and all the rest of it. But we have very little of his music. And what we do have are large-scale public events, whereas this is a, a small group, straight small group jazz recording. And it's an absolute revelation. The Kippy is remarkable for one minute, 80 seconds or something at the very start of the album, where Kippy blows a solo intro, which if you want to know how South African musicians were feeling under apartheid, those that one minute 80 seconds or whatever it is says more in terms of emotion as well as instrumental command than just about anything else I can think of. Thank you. 
Gwen, a final question before I let you go, although I don't want to because I'm having such fun being on the other side of this and, and pummeling you with questions for a change. But I'd love to know in a nutshell how you feel about the state of South African jazz as it exists now. Who are you excited about? Who are you writing about? Um, in terms of the state of South African jazz, one of the reasons why the lack of press coverage is so tragic is I don't think it's ever been stronger. I think there are a huge number of musicians around. I think they're doing really interesting, original stuff. Um, I think, for example, that the release that Julius Peterson put out in London, the Indaba Is compilation of new South African jazz is a really great sampler if anybody wants to hear the various very different kinds of music that are being made. But um, I think in terms of individual artists, this is always invidious because whoever I don't mention um, is going to think I have a reason for not liking them rather than simply <laughs> that one has limited time and can't just go through a 40 person list. But I'd say of albums that I have really enjoyed recently. I, th I, I enjoy just about everything that a pianist called Bogani Dyer plays. I enjoy just about every, um, we've got a lot of great pian piano players. This is, there are going to be a lot of piano players in this list. I enjoy a lot of what a pianist called Tandy and Tuli plays. Um, another pianist who is perhaps slightly less well-known outside this country is Sibu Mashilwane. But Sibu's most recent album, Ihubo Labomdavu, is actually one of the most remarkable solo piano recitals I've ever heard. And again, it's one of those that says a lot. Um, there are, there's a saxophone player called Linda Sikakane. There's a trumpeter called uh, Ndabo Zulu. Um, there is, of course, American listeners will already know him, the pianist um, Nduduzo Makatini, but he has a release out on Blue Note. So I think we can assume transatlantic listeners may have encountered him. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to run out of breath before I run out of names. And I would say there are a lot of really good compilations around starting to emerge. There is the Indaba Is one from London. There is a South African one called New Horizons, which is now in two volumes. Again, a sampler. I think all of those are actually well worth listening to. And I have to say, I have mentioned instrumentalists, and this is my confession, which is probably going to offend you as well, which is I listen to much more instrumental music than I do vocal music um, because the words are better, if that makes any sense at all. That doesn't offend me in the slightest, Gwen. If anything, it makes me sit up and pay more attention now when you do cover vocalists because I'll know that they've made it past the gates to find their way into your ears. No, I mean, there, there, are, there are amazingly good vocalists around, but I, I'm afraid I do not listen to as many of them as I do to instrumentalists. I love the horns, I love the reeds. That's where most of my listening time is spent. But I would also say there are things which you might not think are quite as much down, straight down the middle jazz. And one of, the, one of the groups that I would love to mention in that context is a group that started off as one of these genreless social commentary hip hop outfits called The Brother Moves On several years ago, who are now making the most remarkable music and who have produced um, a track called You Think You Know Me, which if anyone is interested in South Africa's rather tragic rioting last week, Although it was not made about that, it tells you a lot about the mood that fed into that, I think is brilliant. Um, oh, and also another group that I think is doing really interesting stuff is a group called Kinsman, led by a saxophonist called Mohamed Dorji. And I think their work is incredibly interesting in terms of its engagements with identity. There's a guitarist called Vuma Levin, I really, 
you know, we need another hour if I'm going to go through this properly. I mean, I'll give you an hour because I'm sitting here writing down furiously and, mm, and you know, umming and eyeing to myself as you as you mention names. And it's it's just fantastic. I mean, someone like Muhammad Dorji, I haven't seen him since he was a student and I was possibly a student. So I'm just thrilled to hear about Kinsmen fostering a sense of kinship. And they have one album out, but they also have an online project where they are working at a distance, as many people are having to these days, with a Zimbabwean percussionist called Othnil Mangoma, I think if I have his name correct, um, which is also very interesting, where they're creating a transcontinental call and response and making music which they actually send to one another and then respond to, which I wrote a piece about in the Mail and Guardian, and I think that's a really interesting example of what you can do online, even when you are cut off from an audience, which has been one of the most tragic things that COVID has done to us. Of course, in South Africa, the other tragic thing is people have simply been cut off from the ability to eat. And one of the pieces of research I was involved with earlier points out that a huge number of musicians are thinking of getting out of the business that a number of musicians have been selling their instruments to survive during this period. And I think that should concern us so much. I am aware of people who have left the industry because the idea of getting back into it is just, it's just not a possibility after this year and a year and a bit. Look, if you've sold your instrument, you become de-skilled. You are dependent on finding a venue which has more than just basic backline. You and you know, very often for a musician from a less privileged community, they sweated blood to buy that instrument or that equipment in the first place. They're not going to be able to do that again. Oh, well, we'll see how we come out of this and how we move forward from it. But I, but at least, I mean, that list is remarkable, Gwen. And I, as I said, I'd gladly let you go on for another hour. There's no way that we can get you to join Twitter, is there, Gwen? Merely just to tweet no. about South African oh. jazz-related things, please. We'd keep it very focused. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm a writer. The thought of having to express myself in 144 characters or whatever is anathema. I, oh, but you're such a brilliant writer that I think you'd completely rise to the challenge. I disagree with you. No, look, the other thing is, as I discovered with my blog, what drives readership is posting consistently. Uh, it would The same would be true of Twitter. One would have to tweet consistently. I do four other jobs in order to support my music writing and my CD habit because I'm one of those dinosaurs who actually likes physical product. I honestly could not do it as consistently and as well as I would want to and therefore I would rather not do it at all. The blog is enough. Well, I grudgingly accept that as rationale for your not joining Twitter and it just makes me feel all the more glad dare I say smug, that we now have this interview on record because I think that your knowledge is sensational and I think that you speak so beautifully about all areas of not just jazz but also journalism, the intersection of culture and politics. So I'm very glad that failing your being on Twitter and being available to avid readers 24-7, they can find you on your blog, but they also have this document to hear you speak about that, which you do so well. Well, it's nice to have the opportunity, Nikki. Thanks for thinking of me. As I say, I think I'm a bit of an oddity because of the fact that I am not employed full-time as a music journalist, but that makes me less odd in South Africa than it would in some other countries. Yeah, it's completely, you're completely normal, quote-unquote, uh, in South Africa and possibly in other countries because we know the, states of, the state of jazz journalism the world over. Gwen, thank you so much for your time and for coming on The Insider and being part of the Jazz Sessions podcast series. I appreciate it so much. Well, thanks for asking me, Nikki. It's actually, thank you for some questions that actually gave me the chance to speak interestingly, because as I say to my students, if you don't ask good questions, you won't get good answers. Oh, no. Oh, well, I'm very glad to hear you say that because I did think throughout this interview, I was like, does Gwen think this is a good question? <laughs> does Gwen think this question is banal beyond belief? Is she, is she engaged? I was engaged, I promise. 
Yeah, I, I think more people should be listening to South African jazz. It really is exciting at the moment. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I love the names that you mentioned. Thank you, Gwen. Take care. Lots of love. Yeah, you too, Nikki. It was nice to talk to you again after absolute ages. Bye. Bye. Thanks to Gwen Ansel for being my guest for this episode of The Insider. I will make a note of all tracks played during today's episode in the show notes for the episode, as well as any other links mentioned during conversation. The Insider is a spin-off series to the jazz session that I created in order to chat to jazz industry experts about the work that they do and the musicians who inspire them. The Insider is available to Patreon members at the $10 per month tier in advance of the episodes being available to the public on all podcast platforms. If you want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to head to thejazzsession.com slash join, thejazzsession.com slash join, to find out how you can become a patron today. Feel free to rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Check out the Jazz Sessions YouTube channel for video excerpts of interviews with this season's guests. Thank you for listening. I'm Nikki Schrera and I'll see you soon.